Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Let's just pray. <clears throat> Lord God, thank you um, for your presence here with us today. Thank you that you love us, um, that you care for us, and that we are free in your presence, God. Um, I thank you for the day that we're celebrating today, Palm Sunday, and for the God that you showed us to be, showed us who you were, God, um, partly on this day and partly at the end of the week. And uh, yeah, we look forward to more revelation of that as we understand you more, God. Amen. Right, so today is Palm Sunday, um, which is leading us into the last week of Lent. Um, So we have Good Friday and Easter Saturday and Easter Sunday and Easter Monday coming next week. Um, Some of us have been fasting, so we're looking forward to the end of that. I certainly am. Although this week um, I'm kind of taking a day off on my birthday, maybe a day off on Zeke's birthday as well. This is probably not that much of the week left. (laughs) I think I've got about two days of actual fasting left, um, which is quite nice. Um, But yeah, it's been, I think it's been good. It's been interesting to be mindful of that as we've gone through the Lent period. Um, So today, Palm Sunday, which you probably know is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and people put coats and palm leaves um, on the road in in front of him for him to ride over and shout at various things, which is why they call it Palm Sunday. So we're going to talk a bit about that. Um, But to do that, we're going to start actually in Zechariah, which um, is not in the New Testament, as you probably know, um, in the Old Testament. Um, But there's an interesting prophecy in Zechariah about Palm Sunday, which I wasn't actually aware of until I started reading up to uh, prepare for this, so it's quite interesting. So Zechariah um, was a prophet in the 6th century BC, um, and he was thought to have been part of the first company of Israelites that came back to Israel, to Jerusalem, to the homeland after they'd been in Babylon in exile for quite a long period of time. Um, And that time in the world, as well as Israel sort of well coming back to their homeland, not necessarily becoming a nation because they were still occupied or they were still controlled by the Persians, um, is in, around the world it was known as the Axial Age, um, which is where you see the emergence of five major thought patterns across the whole world. Um, so you've got Buddha and Mahavira, who I've never heard of um, in India, but apparently important. Um, Zoroaster in Persia. Persians were the ones that were occupying that region. Um, Pythagoras in Greece, who you probably heard of from maths at school, um, but he was actually quite an important philosopher as well. Um, And Confucius in China. And they all had quite different ways of thinking about things, but they're all sort of at the same time. And this region, because of the way the empires were working, you know, sort of moving backwards and forwards across the Middle East and the Eastern regions, was actually quite cosmopolitan. You know, you've got nations that have been exiled and coming back, and the ones that have been taken over and dragged across continents. Um, so it's not like you would have had just isolated pockets of, you know, this is the way we think. There was a lot of crossover of thought. And so Zachariah is in that context with his nation who are coming back to their homeland. And 
there's this sense of like he's trying to re-establish who Israel are, kind of remind them of their identity in the way he's writing about things. Um, and that's what he does in the first eight chapters of Zechariah. It's kind of a message of hope, um, a message of identity and who Israel are. Um, <coughs> but he's doing that to kind of counteract, I suppose, like where they've come from and also like re-establish them in where, they're, where they've come to. Um, interestingly, um, with this being contemporary with Pythagoras, he in the Greek world, which is very nearby, um, was one of the first or formational Greek philosophers. So Greek philosophy actually becoming a proper thing. Um, he was one of the earliest proponents of that. Um, he went on to influence Plato, who you will have heard of as well, and he went on to influence Aristotle, who is known as the father of Western philosophy. Our culture now, Western civilization is very, very strongly uh, founded on Aristotle. We probably aren't really aware of it, but everything that we take for granted in terms of like scientific knowledge, empiricism, logic, rational argument and reasoning all comes from Aristotle and his lineage of philosophy and has been passed down through the generations. Um, so that's the context that Zachariah was writing in for the first eight chapters, which we're not going to read, but just to give you <laughs> the background of uh, who he was and what he was trying to do. Um, at the same time, they were also rebuilding the temple of, in, in Israel, um, which is not recorded in Zechariah, it's recorded in Ezra, but it's contemporary with what he was writing at that time. Um, the next part, chapters 9 to 14, there's debate over actually when that was written. It reads like it's all at the same time. Some people say that it was written at the same time. Others say that it was actually written maybe 200 years later, um, which would have made it then contemporary with Alexander the Great and Aristotle, interestingly. So the first eight chapters contemporary with Pythagoras and then Aristotle later. Um, it doesn't really matter for what I'm saying today in terms of when we agree it was written, uh, but it's interesting just to note what they were potentially contemporary with. So Zechariah 9, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, um, we're going to read through the whole of the chapter. So the first part says, a prophecy or an oracle. The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and will come to rest, rest on Damascus. For the eyes of the of all people and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and on Hamath too, which borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skilful. Tyre has built herself a stronghold. She has heaped up silver like dust, and gold like the dirt of the streets. But the Lord will take away her possessions and destroy her power on the sea, and she will be consumed by fire. Ashkelon will see it and fear. Gaza will writhe in agony, and Ekron too, for her hope will wither. Gaza will lose her king, and Ashkelon will be deserted. A mongrel people will occupy Ashdod, and I will put an end to the pride of the Philistines. I will take the blood from their mouths, the forbidden food from between their teeth. Those who are left will belong to our God and become a clan in Judah, and Ekron will be like the Jebusites. But I will encamp at my temple to guard it against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. So, quite a bloodthirsty intro to the passage, you know, all of these places that are going to be destroyed and a lot of sort of fire and burning of cities and but Israel are going to be protected 
within it, which is very nice for them, not so nice for everyone else. Um, and it just put it in the language of, I will, God will, the Lord will do this, or preside over it, or in, in some way be involved in all of this stuff that's happening. Um, which we find very frequently in the Old Testament, and sometimes it's very difficult to reconcile that with who we believe God to be, uh, a loving, caring, father figure, peaceful, non-violent. Um, so that's a really important, they're really important questions for us, and I think Palm Sunday is a good day to look at those questions um, and see what some responses might be. So those, that, uh, those first eight verses, there are a list of cities in there, um, which are, are significant in it to a degree. Um, and just while we're looking at it, I wonder how good your biblical geography is. Um, so does anyone know where Damascus is? What country nowadays? Hmm? Lebanon. Not Lebanon. Syria. Syria, yep. Uh, Hamath? Hamath? Or it's actually just called Hamar now, I think. Syria as well. Um, Tyre and Sidon, they're always put together for some reason. Lebanon, yeah. Ashkelon. That's in Israel, yeah. Gaza. We should know that, yeah, Israel. Ekron. Uh, yeah, or Israel. Um, and Ashdod also Israel. So if you know your Middle Eastern geography, you've got Syria, Lebanon, Israel going down the east coast um, of the sea. And it's basically a list of key stops on a military campaign taking that coast of that region. Um, And it is the military stops that Alexander the Great took 200 years later. So if it was written when the rest of Zechariah was written, then it was a 200-year prophecy that was very accurate in terms of what Alexander the Great actually then did 200 years later along that coastline. Um, only one year of his like nine-year military campaign where he took over the whole of the Middle East and went all the way into India. <coughs> Unprecedented success. Um, He uh, also was a student of Aristotle, interestingly. So you've got not just the military takeover, but also the thought takeover. So you had Darius of the Persians, and then you had Alexander of the Greeks, who then took it all back over. And you've got that same conflict of thought and power that's going on all the while, whilst Israel are kind of in the middle of it, um, trying to retain who they are. Um, So whether it was written 200 years before or not, doesn't really matter. Uh, if it was written at the time, then it was more uh, an, ex- an explanation of what's currently going on. Um, but what is interesting is then what the rest of the chapter goes on to say. So from verse 9 in Zechariah chapter 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow or bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth or the, the river to the ends of the earth. So the donkey part of that, riding, lowly riding on donkey, we know is fulfilled on Palm Sunday 300 or 500 years later. Um, 
and we'll come to the gospel accounts of that in a minute but before that I just want to dwell on this for a minute um, so it's fascinating that in this chapter you've got the start of it eight verses of violence and death and oppression and takeover and military conflict conflict and then presumably uh, and seems to be presided over by God but then from verse 9 onwards you've got this king who is put forward by God who is the exact opposite of all that who isn't violent who's riding on a donkey rather than a war horse and Alexander the Great if it was written at that time uh, was famous for riding on a a very famous horse Um, it had a name which I've got in my notes here somewhere Bucephalus yeah and there's Bucephalus the horse has got it its own history it's that famous in many in those times um, because it was such a wild and powerful war horse um, so you've got that contrasted to this king who's riding on a donkey not actually a fully grown donkey a foal of a donkey who could probably barely support a human um, so it's, it's strange, that, well, the contrast is really interesting, but it's strange that both are said to be presided over by God because they seem to uh, conflict with each other, this picture of the way God would do things. Um, it's interesting that the way um, the, the, the good king, the peaceful king, is described as well is that he's, he's not just standing on his own two feet because then he could be said to be strong and powerful because of his own might. Putting him on a donkey actually makes him weaker than even not having any kind of mount or steed to, to, to go on. It's an embarrassment. So is Zachariah's God schizophrenic? One minute he's presiding over consuming cities, um, but the next he's declaring a wobbly pacifist donkey jockey as king. Um, which is the real God? So this is when we... Well, we asked that question, and I think there's a bit of a clue uh, in verse 10. So in verse 1 to 8, you've got a description of the overthrow of Israel um, and those regions by military might. Um, Israel, the actual people are being protected from it, but all of that region is being overthrown. Um, So it's misery and destruction to a localised region. But then in verse 10, when we're talking about the lowly, humble king, his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So the first part of the chapter, it's a very localised region and it's very bad. Uh, but then the second part of the chapter, with this different kind of king, his rule is the whole world. And so I think the chapter is telling us, and Zechariah is telling us, that actually it's the latter one. That's, that's God's best. That's God's way of doing things. Um, that's the one that has the greater power. And I think we know this, um, but just to be sure... Let's see which part of Zechariah's prophecy Jesus chooses to fulfil. So if we go to Matthew 21, um, Palm Sunday is told in all of the Gospels to some degree. I'm going to choose Matthew because it fits with what I want to say. Um, So that's my my right to do that. Um, So start of chapter 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Zechariah, that we've been talking about. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who's this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, which is the real God. So looking at that passage, um, the first thing I want to just look at is who are they? So in verse 1 it says as they approached who is this they so if we go back into chapter 20 um, we will find out so chapter 20 verse 29 starts as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho a large crowd follow him so the they is Jesus with his disciples and a large crowd they're the people that left Jericho and started walking towards Jerusalem and entered on this route. And this is this is significant because we quite often understand the story of Palm Sunday is he's coming into Jerusalem and Jerusalem welcomes him with open arms and they start throwing their cloaks on the road because they know about this Jesus. But actually that's not what the story's saying. What the story's saying is the crowd that's with him are there and they are the ones that lay their cloaks down and that cut down palm branches from people's front gardens and the locals are probably a bit miffed about that. Um, And actually, at the end of it, verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Jerusalem didn't even know who it was. It's it's the crowd that's with him. I wonder what the people, the crowd that were with him, were thinking of all this. Um, I wonder whether the other people in the city, not knowing really who he was, might have been a bit worried. Is this the beginning of an uprising? This uprising, this large crowd of people entering and doing this weird stuff and chanting these things, um, or maybe excited for the same reason if they were hoping for a revolution. Um, I wonder if Jesus was aware of the mountain feeling among his followers that something big was about to happen, and maybe that's why he chose to do things in a certain way. So. To get a bit of a picture of what the feeling was among that crowd, we can, again, if we go back into chapter 20, um, there's this fascinating story in verse 17, um, and we'll just read it. Um, So, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, as we know. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, it's quite a big thing that he's telling his disciples. Um, In Matthew, there doesn't appear to be any kind of response from the disciples. They're just kind of, "Hmm, okay, that's interesting sort of thing. it It just follows straight on to this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons, James and John this is, of mine, may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. And I think James and John are probably there saying, Mum, I told you not to say anything. (laughs) um, But then it carries on. Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And they're like, We can. Of course we can. They're not... They don't seem to have taken in the fact that Jesus has just told them, I'm going to die. I'm going there to be condemned to death. 
what what their what their minds are focused on is what position they get in this new regime that Jesus is going to establish. He says, "Can you drink from this cup?" Which is, to be fair, a bit of a riddly way of saying to them what they need to be taking on, and they just say yes without even necessarily thinking about what that really means. Um, he then says, "You will drink this cup," and they probably still don't know what that means, um, but they find out later. In verse uh, 24, then, following on from that, the rest of the disciples hear about this conversation and they start having a tiff with James and John, um, envious that somehow their mum has managed to secure them these like, powerful places in this new regime that's about to uh, come, come to pass. So Jesus needs to get a bit more involved, tempers their enthusiasm, and the phrase that we find repeated a lot in his ministry, whoever wants to be first must be your slave, the first will be last. It's that kind of theme of don't try and put yourself up, don't try and lord yourself over, don't be that kind of leader. That's not what we are about. Um, But we can see that that's where the disciples' minds were at. The disciples, the 12 that were closest to Jesus, this is what they were thinking. You know, how can they get position in this new regime, this potential revolution? Um, So the crowd, who are further removed from Jesus, who haven't had these in-depth conversations, you can imagine probably what they're thinking too. It's not going to be any better than than the 12 disciples. So you've got this expectant crowd on the way to Jerusalem, a large crowd of followers. This is the they, devoted and excited. Um, And they start singing and chanting, Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David being a reference to his royal bloodline, potential kingship. In Luke's gospel, it actually records the chant as, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. King. So was this the start of a revolution? But a coup d'etat is not, what Jesus' intention was, at least not of the type that they were expecting. So to make that clear, Jesus asks for a small donkey to ride on. He doesn't come in on a big horse. He doesn't come in with military power. And he deliberately fulfills the the prophecy of Zechariah as a means of communicating that he was that kind of king, a king of peace, a king not of weapons and violence that's going to overthrow, but a king that's going to bring rest. Um, Interestingly, I want you to have this up for this, because this is funny. In Matthew's version, it does say, when that comes on, that he was uh, riding on two donkeys. That'll come up in a minute. So if we just go back to um, the part. Uh, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything, to say that the Lord needs them. And this took to place to fulfill the prophecy. And uh, then it says, a very large crowd, oh no, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them. For Jesus to sit on. So Jesus was actually riding a small foal on top of a grown donkey, which was even more ridiculous. I don't think he was actually riding like that, but it would have been quite impressive if he was. Um, but it does say two donkeys in Matthew's version, um, which is interesting. That has absolutely no relevance to what we're talking about. I just thought it was funny. Yeah. So, back to where we were. So the 
The point of the donkey is twofold. One, to fulfill the prophecy, and the prophecy talks about the type of king that this is going to be. But two, in real concrete terms, he's entering the city in a humble manner, in a slightly ridiculous manner, kind of a laughable, embarrassing manner to a lot of the locals that were around. Um, you've heard it spoken about before, I think when Sai's talked about this, that um, at this time, which was around the Passover, uh, Pontius Pilate, who was the governor to the region, would very likely have been also entering the city from the other side of the city uh, because it was a time of intense religious fervour because it's the Passover um, and Rome, who were occupying that place, wanted to show that they were still in charge with all of these people coming back to the city to do their religious um, observances. And so Pontius Pilate would have been entering the city with a big military possession, probably about 600 horses and foot soldiers, big banners with golden eagles on. You'd be able to sort of feel the rumbling of the feet as they go through the streets. Um, and they would have been crying, praise to the Prince of Peace, praise to the Son of God, because that's how Caesar was known um, among the Roman Empire. But he was a very different kind of Prince of Peace, and he was a very different kind of Son of God. So while that's happening, Jesus is doing this, coming in on a donkey, showing not power and military might, but humility and vulnerability. Um, what's interesting is that actually it's not just the Romans that kind of miss it, it's not just the locals that miss it, but seemingly even Jesus' disciples miss it. No one seems to really understand what exactly he is doing. Um, his closest disciples are busy vying for position in that kingdom, leading up to it. The wider crowd are praising him as a new king. So it's contrasting to Pilate, but I wonder if the crowd really realise what they're doing or whether they're actually hoping that this is just... He's not yet a new Pilate, but he will be in a few years' time once he's taken over and he's got his own army together, like King David was. And they're shouting, Son of David. So everyone's missing it. Potentially, We can't speak for everyone, I suppose, but this seems to be the context of what's going on. Um, they haven't really taken in the fact that he said, I'm going there to be killed, to lay down my life. And as we've heard, the local residents, when he entered and they were stirred, they were just like, who dis? And <laughs> then the disciples say, oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth, you know, the prophet. And a lot of people are like, oh, okay. You know, there's no kind of like, oh, wow, yeah, it's Jesus. Suddenly they start praising too. It's just kind of like, it's a bit of a flat ending. Um, because he was riding on a donkey. So they missed it. So this new king, much to our disappointment, doesn't come with weapons, a military guard, or precision-driven motorcade. Uh, he doesn't have nuclear codes or the authority to inflict economic sanctions on other countries. He's a servant on a donkey. He's full of love and grace and truth and healing and he's full of peace but he is vulnerable. Recently you will have heard about um, Donald Trump's plan to meet with King Kim Jong-un um, Kim Jong-un with an intended date of sometime in May. Um, so that was reported a few weeks ago. Uh, and as I was listening to the reports, it's interesting they were saying that even though there's probably about two months still, there was concern that this was too soon, that this was too imminent, that there wouldn't be enough time to plan. And I was kind of thinking, like, prepare, plan what? You know, all he's doing is, like, meeting a guy, just have a conversation. But 
in, in, in the political world, in the modern world, um, nothing is just a normal conversation. Everything that happens has been planned, has been rehearsed, there's been speeches written for it, there's an agenda set of what questions will and won't be asked, and what the answers to those questions already are, it's been rehearsed. It's what Jesus called hypocrisy, basically actors. So none of it is real, none of it is actually what these people think, and it's probably a good job with it being Donald Trump. <laughs> Um, although it won't go any better, I'm sure, with it, with it being scripted for him, because he never sticks to the script. But um, in the meantime, as preparing all of the political side of it, his security team will also be planning for every single footstep, so he's not vulnerable at all. Every step has got a plan, it's got a backup plan, it's got a backup to the backup plan, it's got routes out, it knows where they're going to be, where they're going to be staying, where the various protection military are going to be. The estimated cost of the US presidential security detail, just in general, is over $2 million a day. Every day, $2 million just protecting the president. And that's not to denigrate America, because our politicians are probably quite similar. I don't think we have quite the same level of security um, with our politicians, but the, the, like, the political preparation, the way they talk, is exactly the same. Everything has been scripted, everything has got speechwriters, teams of people that put these things together in the right ways, and you never get a straight answer when they're asked a straight question. It just gets dodged, and they're never vulnerable. They're never real. Um, and, you know, we can't expect our politicians to be like Jesus, but the contrast just helps us to see just how audacious this was, what Jesus was doing, the vulnerability that he was putting himself in. Um, I wonder sometimes if also we're so different to a lot of the political world um, in the way that we respond, in the way that we can be not real when we're asked how we are, I'm fine, and we don't let it go deep, we're not open with ourselves. And particularly things like social media and the fact that so much communication is by text in some form or another, you know, we have so much opportunity to edit and control what we're communicating that we're we really lack opportunities to be vulnerable a lot of the time. After the entry um, into the city, uh, the next part of the story is Jesus going into the temple, and it's really not a separate part of the story. It is the end of the story, so it's really important that we talk about that as well. So um, in verse 12, he visits the temple. In Mark's version of the Gospel, this finish is really quite comical so in Mark 11, 11 he's just come into the city and there's been all this hoo-ha and laying down of palm branches and stuff and then it says Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, he looked around at everything but since it was already late he went out to Bethany with the twelve that's it <laughs> it's like, so everyone's expecting a revolution he's just like, oh, it's a bit late guys you know, maybe we could revolt tomorrow you know, a bit tired it's a complete anti-climax but um, without getting into why they record it differently, and I think there are good reasons, Matthew's version is slightly different. So he gives a bit more text to what he actually does in the temple other than just looking around. So from verse 12 in chapter 21, I'll read that. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. 
And it goes on after this, but we'll just talk about this first. So he turns over some tables, potentially seen as a violent act um, in the Gospel of John. There's also some reference to him making a whip. Um, and I think it really depends on the picture you paint as you imagine that. Um, so if you imagine Jesus being like Jesus Statham, strutting in and grabbing a rope, and he's like a martial artist, and he's whipping the guys in the face, and they're all a bloodied port before he throws them out by the collar, then yes, that's pretty violent. And some Christians do actually see it that way, that Jesus was a tough guy. But there's another version of that picture, one where he's just ridden in on a donkey, and he's actually barely been recognised by the locals there. He's kind of a nobody to some degree. Um, He goes, as that nobody, to the cultural, political and commercial centre of that city. This is a big deal that he's just walking into this place. It's full of people. He's unarmed and unarmoured. And they're trying to do their job and make money. And he starts trying to make them leave. He doesn't use force. Um, The cord that's in John is for clearing the animals. He probably annoys quite a lot of people by doing that. And the text in Matthew doesn't make it abundantly clear, but it does in the sequence say that the turning of the tables is after the people left. He clears the temple, then he turns the tables over. So he didn't necessarily do that before managing to get them out of there. It doesn't really explain how he got them out, but somehow he did. Um, I don't think it was violent at all. I think it was a highly risky, very vulnerable piece of civil disobedience that he was doing there. Um, the best example that I could equate it to in modern times would not be riding on a donkey. Oh, has it gone off again? Would be um, Tiananmen Square, which you might have heard of. There's a really powerful image, which you'll see when this comes on. Um, but interestingly, before you see it, you know, if, if you heard about this story without seeing the image that's about to come up, what you would hear is that one man stopped a whole column of tanks from invading a space. Can you see that? See that one guy? He's, just, he's holding some shopping bags, I think. You can't quite see it in that image, but he's not armed. And when you see the zoomed out version, what is there, like 20 tanks there that he's just stood in front of? That is a vulnerable act. If you just heard the story, you might think that he was somehow some kind of Rambo character that managed to put put a stop to this um, entry into the city of this military power. Um, But actually, it was nothing like that. He just laid his life on the line. He could have been killed, and a lot of people were killed in, in the Tiananmen Square massacre as it's known in the western world um, but he he risked himself he risked being vulnerable and I think that that's more like what Jesus was doing here I don't think it was a violent overthrow and in case you're not sure about that I think when you read the aftermath of what he then went on to do it kind of makes it clearer um, so after clearing the temple which in my mind was non-violent and like a subversive protest about what was going on. Um, It goes on to say what he then did. So verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do 
you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And then he left and went out to the other city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So for a brief moment, having just cleared the temple, he provides this kind of picture of what his kingdom looks like. It's not a kingdom where everyone's oppressed. It's a kingdom where the outcasts come and they get healed. It's a kingdom where kids hang out and shout and, and make a fuss in the court. This is what God is really like. Unrecognised, riding in on a donkey and then healing people. So he didn't come to establish a new kingdom of that nature. Um, but he did come to establish his kingdom. And as we heard from Sai last week, um, the ends never justify the means. And this is why it was so important the way he did it. If he'd come with violent power, his kingdom would have been a kingdom of violent power. But he came humbly and peacefully. And the first celebrants of his new kingdom were blind, lame, outcasts, children. He also didn't actually take over. He occupied a space just for a few brief moments, maybe minutes, maybe a couple of hours, but then he left. He didn't establish this new kingdom, having taken over the temple. He went in there, he did something, and then he left. Because another important fact of his kingdom was that he was demonstrating that it didn't belong to him. It didn't belong to those that had taken ownership of it, but it didn't belong to him either. He wasn't going to take over and start owning this thing. So on Palm Sunday, we remember the kind of king that Jesus came to be. Um, In so doing, we recognize a picture of the kind of God that we serve, the kind of God that lives within us. We're challenged to be a challenge to the dominant, empire-building, military-secured mindset of our prevailing culture. And we are asked to be vulnerable, to walk in that way, to follow him, to be willing to risk, to be willing to look foolish, to be willing for people to not recognize us, you know, all of these things that tempt us from being risky to being famous, you know, all of these things are kind of on that spectrum that Jesus rejected. And we know that we're not violent, but just being, just not being violent is not the same as being non-violent. So the crowd in Tiananmen Square, you don't even see them in that picture, there was only one man that actually went out and stood in front of the tanks. Everyone else there was not being violent, but he was the one that was actively non-violent. He was the one that was willing to take it a step further and actually risk something in, for what he believed in. So we ask ourselves, how can we be more vulnerable? How can we be more open? How can we be less controlling of our environment? We talked about the way we, can, the way we communicate and we have so much control over what we say to people and the image that we put out. Everything's so edited, curated. Um, and we live in an age where we're overwhelmed with wealth and temptation to be selfish and greedy and you know in the west if we're honest we probably all are to a bit we we're frequently given opportunities to cut corners to make things better for ourselves a little bit rather than following the way of integrity following the way of vulnerability risking looking foolish risking losing things um And the system that we're in is built on an economy that exploits and oppresses whole regions of the planet and the weakest around us. How do we resist that? How do we civilly disobey that way of doing things? I'm not making any suggestions 
I'm not saying we should all revolt or suddenly stop buying clothes from somewhere or whatever that is. You know, there's, there's so many different ways that we can do things and so ways that we can act. I'm just encouraging us to be aware of it and be mindful and recognize that on Palm Sunday, this is the king that Jesus came to be. He wasn't a king that was going to take over and establish a new powerful kingdom. He was a king who looked ridiculous. He was a king who had no power in the way that we would normally think of it. Um, and he was a king that didn't even stick around once he'd gotten in there and managed to clear a space. He, he made an example. He, he painted a picture of what his kingdom would look like and then he left it open for us to do the rest. So as we look ahead this week, <clears throat> having welcomed a humble king of peace into our city today, we also look towards the crucif- crucifixion of this God, to the culmination of this humble king, this man Jesus, and we see an example of just how far that love, that vulnerability is willing to go, that sacrifice, and we recognise that we're being called to follow the same path. So I'm just going to finish with a prayer. We're going to close our eyes. But God, as we reflect on this on Palm Sunday, I pray that you would help us to see your true nature, that you would give us a revelation of that. You'd help us to understand what it means to be, to not be violent and to be non-violent. What it means to not be part of oppressive, destructive ways of life. Help us to see what it means to be peaceful, to be loving, to be compassionate, and help us to be open to those things growing in us. Open our eyes to the opportunities that we have to walk in your path and to understand that every small action, one at a time, can change the world around us. Amen. Thanks, Pete.